welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're diving back into a new year of conversation with the people defining horror in 2021. So speaking of 2021, it had one job, be better than 2020. And so far, I'm not that sure how it's doing. Infection rates are skyrocketing here in the UK. Morons are attempting to usurp democracy in the USA. And there's rumours that Army Hammer is a cannibal. I, I don't know about that last one. I saw a hashtag and I thought, nah, I'm not reading anymore. But with all that happening, what better time to pick up a book and accept the soothing balm of some unreal horrors while we wait for the vaccine to get the pubs open? As far as this show goes, we couldn't have a better start. Our first guest of the year is Will Dean, the author of The Last Thing to Burn. And anyone who's listened to the show recently or glimpsed my Twitter ramblings will know the esteem I hold this book in. I read it back in December and and I so wanted to stick it right at the top of my chart for the year. But as it was only published officially this year, that didn't seem right. So I've held my peace until now. But here goes. The Last Thing to Burn is a deceptively simple novel about two people locked in a struggle inside an isolated farmhouse. And the things that occur in that house will chill you and sicken you and inspire you. Will is no stranger to isolation himself. As you'll hear, he speaks to us from his home in the middle of a Scandinavian forest. He's living the writer's dream. Sadly, living in a a quite literal cabin in the woods does mean sacrificing bandwidth. So you may find that the audio in this week's episode isn't quite up to the standard we offer week on week. Don't worry, I've been through it with a fine digital tooth comb, but there may be a few more pops and echoes than we we normally get. The conversation is so good, though, that you, you won't care. So, without further delay, welcome back to the show, and come with me to the English Fens. The land is so flat that you can watch your dog run away for three days. The only light is from a farmhouse, and the thing's burning within. Let's talk scared. So, hi, Will, and thanks for talking scared. Hello, Neil. Thank you very much for having me on. I ask every guest where I'm speaking to them from, um, and I know that you have a particularly kind of interesting answer to that. So where in the world are you today? <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm talking to you from a wooden cabin in the Swedish forest. I've lived here full time for uh, just over eight years now, with my wife and my boy and my dog. Yeah, so we're, we're kind of in a little clearing at the center of a vast forest. And if you walk in any direction for like a day, you're still in the forest. So we're very off-grid, self-sufficient kind of quiet life. Yeah, just to mention that, as brilliant as living in the forest and being a writer may be, it does mean you have fairly minimal Wi-Fi. Um, So uh, for any listeners who are a bit stumped by the potential lower quality of audio, apologies, and it is because Will is living the dream in a Scandinavian forest. It's my fault. I, I take full responsibility. Before we get to the book, I've got to ask you, though, why have you relocated to a Swedish forest? How did that happen? What's the, the background to that? I mean, it, it all stems back to when I was a kid, really, in the Midlands. Growing up, I was a very socially awkward, bookish, weird kid. I was very, like, I felt like an observer of life, like an alien. I didn't feel like I was part of everybody else. I was just kind of watching. I used to get a lot of comfort from... Uh, libraries from books from and from nature from being in the wild or being somewhere extremely quiet from my 20s onwards I lived in London 
working, trying to make a living. And then when, as soon as I was in my kind of mid thirties, I was desperate to get back to a very quiet, very low cost, simple kind of life. So uh, my wife is Swedish. So the natural kind of choice was to try somewhere in Sweden. And there's a lot of plots of land that are not convenient, you know, that don't have any services that are extremely cheap here. So we found this boggy clearing on the internet and it was very cheap. It had been on the market for a long time and we, we bought it and then we, uh, I built a kind of a, a wooden house, Swedish style, kind of Ikea style flat pack. And that's where we are. So it's, a, it's, a, it's taken a, a bit of getting used to, you know, no takeaways, no cafes, no restaurants, no bookshops, nothing like that. Just nature and wilderness, a lot of moose walking through the forest. But it's, uh, it's a good place to read and, and write. I imagine it's quite a good place to sit out a global pandemic as well. <laughs> uh, like, yes and no, because our day-to-day life hasn't changed at all. We don't see anybody. We are very socially distanced as it is. Um, and we, you know, we grow a lot of our own food. We take our own water from our well. We chop wood for eating and cooking and all that kind of thing. But at the same time, as a writer, I'm also used to traveling a lot, you know, doing like 20 international trips a year to different festivals. And I love those because I love meeting readers you know, I'm such a hermit most of the year that I do love to get out and about and meet meet readers, meet booksellers, meet other authors as well, other writers. You know, it's a very generous kind of relaxed group in the in the in the writer world. And I do miss that a lot. So I'm looking forward to traveling again next year, hopefully. Yeah, well, aren't we all? Um, I mean, if anything else, then let, let's consider this a conduit to the world for you. You can you, this is you meeting your audience via via a Zoom call in my back bedroom. Sounds good to me. So let's talk about the book anyway. The Last Thing to Burn. It's already been tipped as one of the absolute must-reads for next year, and Hodder are pushing it as their headline release. Can you kick us off by telling us what we need to know? Sure. So, yeah, The Last Thing to Burn is is a standalone novel. It's my first standalone, and it's a very tense, horrific story uh, set in a small isolated Fenland cottage in the east of England in East Anglia and on this cot in this cottage this tumble down farm cottage there are two characters so the entire book pretty much revolves around revolves around these two characters a man and a woman and the man is stopping the woman from leaving this life and this place so it's been likened to room by Emma Donoghue and misery by Stephen King it's one of those kind of claustrophobic stories and it's the story of her it's not the story of him she is the main character he is the villain and it is the story of her and how she survives this ordeal this terrible life where he's controlling every aspect of her life Uh, there are no physical boundaries because it's the fence so it's incredibly flat and open but still he will not let her leave he controls you know there's a box on the bolted to the wall with all of the keys he controls all of the keys he controls all of the meals and the food and he demands certain meals on certain days he's a very very quietly menacing kind of character and the story is of her surviving this and the story of how she copes and how she hopefully thrives so my first question with it being such a dark grim tale i've got to ask what inspired you to write it in the first place i i normally start with landscape like a a situation that I see in my mind's eye, in my imagination. So I saw uh, one night around midnight, I saw from kind of above an aerial view of this little farm, this this tiny little farm. And I'm very used to these because that's where I'm from, that part of the Midlands on the edge of the fence. So I thought I saw this tiny kind of two up, two down cottage. 
semi-derelict and and the vast fens are around it and those long straight dikes uh, going off to the salt marshes and the sea and i saw from above in my mind's eye this woman who could not leave all i knew about her then was she could not leave she was being controlled she could not leave and i thought that was such a desperate miserable setup and i wanted to know her i wanted to understand her backstory and what was stopping her from leaving and what she was going to do about it um so really it's a very kind of character driven story it's about her and it's a thriller and it's a horrific thriller but it's also a lot about love and family and resilience yeah it is it's it's an incredibly affirming story as as grim as it is because as you say it's about her surviving this rather than her suffering this that said it is grim and in the wake of things like you know the joseph fritzel case which is actually longer ago now than i thought it was when i did the research and you know there's been there's been a bit of a over the last sort of 10 15 years there's been a slew of these captivity narratives coming out in real life did any of that influence the story and and what was the research like for this because i imagine it must have been pretty pretty taxing and dark none of those stories really influenced this that much i didn't research those true life captive stories because i wanted to tell this particular story i didn't want to take bits and pieces from those real life situations so i the research that i did was into things like uh the the specific drug the agricultural drug that len the villain uses to kind of control uh the main character he kind of creates an addiction for her it's kind of a painkiller addiction so i wanted to research the impact that would have on the human body i had to research different crops sown at different times of the year so that i could authentically kind of render that landscape so that you would understand the time of year and the chill in the floor and things like that from the crops that are out there and from what len is dealing with with his farm machinery i did a lot of research into people trafficking and understanding uh these vast debts that a lot of people have to pay off once they get to a certain place and that was really illuminating the fact that you know if if somebody pays to hopefully get a better life in another country and they arrive there and often a lot of what they were sold turns out to be lies often the debt that they have to repay is so incredibly difficult to repay because not only are they repaying the money and the interest but they're often also paying like accommodation costs for a terrible accommodation they're often paying transport costs often paying lots of other costs that they don't really know about that they have no control over and it's just a very desperate situation so i researched a lot of different aspects for for many many months but in terms of those real life captive cases i didn't want to research them because i wanted this to be something from myself and from my own imagination that is quite the imagination then because it goes in some pretty grim places but it's interesting that you've mentioned landscape in in each of your your answers so far you know that does come out that that was a real focal point because it's such an integral part of the story i have a lot of listeners from you know the us and australia and and other parts of the world that that may not know the nature of of the fens and and this part of the british isles first of all can you explain why it's so integral to the the way the story works and and also why did you set it there why did you come back to england with your fiction after you've been writing in you know you've been setting stories over in scandinavia for for most of your career good question so just setting the scene the fens is 
there are there are equivalent landscapes all around the world but it's basically land reclaimed from the sea so it's incredibly flat and when i used to live there all my childhood and 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 travel around there and when i go back now i'm always shocked by how featureless it is it is is it it is utterly flat it's like a piece of paper that's kind of a cruel element to this story because my main character can see the distant road because there are no walls or hedges or fences she can see the distant road she can see cars and buses she can see spires of local parish churches so she can see hope out there she can just never get to it and that is that element of frustration is another layer of the the despair and the horror through the story and what in terms of part 2 you know i love writing the swedish landscape and it feels very exotic to me but i think i didn't quite have the confidence as a writer to write where i'm from where i was born those fields that i walked as a boy with my dog i didn't have the confidence to write that until i'd written a few other books and then i felt like okay now i need to kind of go go home in a sense and write that story and write that landscape that i that i was brought up in your pre you mentioned your your previous novels have been set in the scandinavian landscape um this is the tuva mudison series which has been been come out to great acclaim began with dark pines in was it 2017 january 2018 i think the physical book came out do you feel that you've brought any of that scandinavian tradition to the last thing to burn have you learned anything you think that you've brought to this novel i think i i think and i hope that i've i've learned a lot about storytelling in general i i don't think i write scandinavian to be honest i think um the tuva books are more like twin peaks or fargo set in sweden so they're more like small town mysteries they're very stephen kingesque and you get to know those small town characters and they're, they're very quirky there's a lot of humor and light and shade uh where uh, so there's not a lot of scandinavian in there apart from the kind of noirish weather whereas in in this book in the last thing to burn No, I don't think it's uh, there's a lot of Scandinavian stuff in there either. What I learn through writing and through uh reading, I I'm, I'm quite an obsessive reader, is just I don't even know how to how to explain it, but if I read 100 books in a year, they'll they'll all help me as a writer, but I'll read one or two books out of those 100 that really push my writing forwards. And that's what I think contributed to this book. It's not necessarily the Scandinavian tradition, it's just me reading and distancing myself from the real world and being in the sweet in the swedish nature as kind of a hermit and and working and reading right good answer right because i'm going to ask about craft and i've i've actually kind of reconsidered this question numerous times and every time it just comes out as a statement but i want to know what you think about it basically because i've got to be honest i was initially reluctant to feature the last thing to burn on this show and that's because i got entirely the wrong idea of the nature of the book as i clearly just have about the tuva series i got the impression that this was much more of a straightforward thriller than it actually turns out to be it turns out to be very very literary and also very very scary i mean i've read dozens of books this year featuring all manner of ghosts and demons and monsters and and the two books that have scared me the most have been Roman Alarms Leave the World Behind and and The Last Thing to Burn both of which are are not really you know you wouldn't find them in the horror shelves in 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 Waterstones but I find it absolutely 
heart racing to the extent that I was I felt a physical change in my body I was turning the pages faster I was breathing faster what I want to know is and I don't think if, if you can even answer this question did you actively set out to write a kind of propulsive page turner that had that effect on people was that your aim and if so how do you go about doing that and knowing it's working you give me way too much credit here even with the question <laughs> I don't set out to do anything clever like that at all honestly I just I set out with with the two characters in this in this case, or really one character, and I just wanted to tell her story. And the reason I think maybe there is some momentum to the storytelling is that I write first drafts incredibly quickly. I wrote this first draft in three weeks. Wow. Yeah, it's not a very healthy process. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but it means that I never really get out of the main character's head as it's written in first person, present tense. So I never get out of her head. Uh, you know, I write a chapter in the morning and then through lunch, I'm just thinking about the next scene. And then I write a chapter in the afternoon. In the evening, I'm thinking about the next scene. I wake up thinking about that scene and then I start getting to the next chapter. So it's never ending. And after that three weeks, I'm utterly exhausted, but at least I've got a first draft. And that first draft is me telling myself the story. But because I write it so fast and I don't let myself get sidetracked by anything else, you know, I, I have to do certain things like pick up my kid from school and cook dinner, but I'm not like mentally there. For those three weeks I am very much in the book and that means hopefully there is that momentum there is that kind of there's there's not a lot of saggy bits it's you you get straight into it and some of my favorite authors write quite short intense books and I guess that as a writer you try and write what you like to read okay I mean this is a bit of a trite question um but are you a planner or a pantser then no man, it's a, it's a good question. I think I think it's good to lift the lid on all these things and and talk about this stuff. I I don't really see myself as either very much. I'm a visualizer. That's what I try and explain. So, I have an idea. The idea for the last thing to burn came to me one night at midnight. I saw that image, and then instead of like falling asleep and hoping that I would remember it the next morning, I just went with it. And I thought, okay, who, where has she come from? What's his deal? Why is he holding her here? How is he doing that? You know, what What are her other relationships that are keeping her alive, keeping her going, keeping that hope alive? And I just thought that through until 6 a.m. At 6 a.m., I had the entire book. And then I took about six months to uh, research it and to think it through and to kind of daydream it. And then after six months, I wrote the first draft in three weeks. So I visualize a lot. I see the cottage in my mind's eye as much as I possibly can. I kind of walk around in the cottage so I know it really well in the hope that then readers will see it really well for themselves. And I walk around those fields and I understand hopefully like the setting and the characters and the feelings and the weather and the, the, the discomfort and certain objects like the copy of, of mice and men. That's very important to the main character and, and this Rayburn where her possessions are systematically burned one by one. I, I visualize all of that. So I, I try and have a very strong image in my head. And then when it comes to writing the book, um, it tends to kind of flood out as this exorcism. And then, like I say, after a few weeks, the book is out. It's not perfect. It, you know, I, I think it took me four years after that to work on that draft to get Len's dialect right and things like that and to, to work on the language. But the story itself comes out fairly fast. So I guess I'm a bit of a, I'm a visualizer and that's like a bit of a plan, a bit of a pants. I plan it in terms of images in my head and then I just go with it. 
okay i'm still really the three weeks for a draft thing i mean i'm trying to write a novel at the minute and i, I it's like pulling teeth so that, that's um that's very alien and impressive to me i think i think the reason i do that honestly is because i'm terrified i'm scared that i will fail to write a first draft or i will lose track of it i, I feel like you know writing a story as you know you, you're holding up a whole world a whole imaginary world in your hands on your shoulders it's a it's a burden it's difficult and I can't do that for months and months on end, but I can do it in a few weeks. And maybe I was kind of inspired by Stephen King, you know, in his wonderful, generous book on writing, where he often talks about uh, the speed at which he wrote first draft. And I, I maybe hearing him say he could do it made me realize that perhaps I could give it a go. And now I love doing it that way because it's less terrifying for me. I know that after a month, the book will be there in a very rough form. Yeah, it sounds like a thing that you want out of you rather than a kind of enjoyable creative process. Oh, it is enjoyable, honestly. I mean, this one was was enjoyable in terms of the fact that I'm telling myself a story, right? And that's the most thrilling thing in the world. My first draft month each year is my favourite month of the year because I get such a buzz, such a rush. It's because I, it's terrifying on the one hand, but it's the most creative thing I ever do. So I do enjoy it, but it's not, it's not comfortable, you know, I enjoy it, but it's not comfortable. So I, I'm pushing myself, I'm exhausted. And with this particular book, I had a knot in my stomach the whole time. There was a kind of visceral fear for the main character. You know, I was so invested in her. I so, I really cared for her. So I didn't want bad things to happen to her, but bad things happened to her. So it was an uncomfortable book to write in that sense. But I do love writing first drafts. That's what I do this for. If I was never to be published again, I would still write a first draft every year. I mean, on, on the back of this, you will be published again. I won't worry about that. But yeah, I take your point. <laughs> um, so you've already mentioned Stephen King twice in this conversation. So let's kind of address the, the elephant in the room. There's a comparison that has been made that is called The Last Thing to Burn, Misery Meets Emma Donoghue's Room. They are two very, very big books with very, very big shoes to fill. How, first of all, how do you feel about those comparisons? I don't really think about it too much, honestly. It's too scary. It's too overwhelming to think about. Yeah, that's my question, because now, in, in retrospect, it's great to be compared to those those kind of monoliths in, in, in that way, I assume. But when you were writing it, was room there in the back of your mind? Because that was the first book I remember. Maybe John Fowles is the collector, but it was the first novel of this century that kind of took on this theme of sexual captivity in like a sober way. So did it, at any point, did you feel any concerns about butting up against that? No, partly because like the way I write, I try and distance myself from everything else. I try and cocoon myself. And obviously that's not possible. I'm influenced by all sorts of things. But w the actual process of writing that first draft, I try to, I don't worry about publishing. I don't worry. Will this get a publishing deal? Will it get picked up? Will it be a success? I screen out all of that noise because it's all impossible to predict anyway. And also, when I started writing it, I didn't understand the story. I didn't understand the ending. I didn't know what was going to happen. So I, there's no way I could have compared it to Room. Plus the fact that I hadn't read Room at that point. Oh, that helps. Definitely wasn't thinking of Room. I, wasn't, I don't think I was thinking of Misery either, because they're quite different books. But now, in retrospect, that's, that, they are good comparisons. It's some, it's, they are, there's definitely something there. But, you know, there's a bit of a cliche, but the author is telling themselves the story in a first draft. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm... I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if I'm going to find the voice of the main character. I don't know if the ending is going to be satisfying. I don't know anything. I, I'm, 
it's very, it's like stepping into a void. I just hoped that it would be a story that was that would be interesting for other people to read. To be clear, just not not to give people the wrong idea, it it's very different to both of those novels. You know, it's in no way derivative. It just there's a kind of then overlap, I suppose, but it's very different. There is um, a very specific injury inflicted on your protagonist, Jane, um, that to me strongly evokes a kind of certain wince-inducing scene in misery. So was that not a conscious reference? It was definitely not a conscious reference. It might well have been a subconscious reference. Like, I, I haven't got that much control over my subconscious. I, don't, I can't say, but it might well be in there, you know? Everything I've ever written and seen influences my work in some way, as as same with everybody else. So it might it might have influenced it to some extent. But at the same time, if she is there and she cannot leave, there needs to be something, some reason why she can't leave. I didn't want her kind of chained to the wall or anything like that. I didn't want her locked in the basement. I wanted something different to that. I wanted her living in such a way that Len, the farmer, believes in some sense that she is his wife. This is a very happy family home. Uh, you know, the, the, for me, the, some of the most chilling scenes are where they sit down to watch the snooker at the end of the day after dinner. and The Rayburn's hot behind them and he makes her sit on the floor and he kind of puts his hand through her hair. And he says things like, it's not bad here, is it? You know, it's not a bad life. Roof over our head. You know, we've got food. It's not a bad life. And that is just writing those sentences was it was really horrible and um yeah the, the the injury that she she has is is kind of just a practical necessity for her to be able to live that kind of existence that he wants her to live but still she can't leave because if she was fit and healthy she'd be able to run off at some point and i didn't want that but you also come up with some really nice kind of emotional reasons why she she can't just leave which are actually very believable because as you say you've got to have a structure in place for why she can't leave and it's not just the injury there is there is more emotional baggage there isn't there as well absolutely yeah a big part of it is is i mean the, the layers of control are just awful you know there's the drugs there's her injury there are threats to her safety and then there is kind of blackmail she she tells he tells the main character if you leave your sister who came over in this from vietnam in the same way who's now living in manchester uh working in Manchester, paying off her debt, has been paying off her debt for years. If the main character leaves the farm, then then her sister in Manchester will be sent back. Having worked so hard for all those years to, to be free, she will be sent back. So the main character cannot countenance that as a possibility. She cannot let that happen. So she basically kind of lives for her sister then. And she even throughout the book, she's kind of uh, daydreaming about what her sister could be doing with her little bit of freedom that she has relative to yeah that's actually reminds me of something i found interesting jane and forgive me i've forgotten her real name which kind of undermines the entire point of the novel in the because <laughs> i'm calling about the name she's given she's vietnamese yeah and i find that quite interesting because the, the cliche that we all have these days i mean how awful it is that there can even be a cliche about this but the cliche tends towards Eastern European women. Is there a reason you chose a different background for Jane? Not really. She kind of just appeared to me like in that way. When, like I say, when I was visualizing her, I saw her quite clearly. I didn't really see Len. Len has always been a faceless character to me, but I saw her quite clearly. And in reality, there are a lot of Vietnamese 
who who come to the UK and are not treated well. You know, whether that's by by people here or or by the people who facilitated that that journey. Uh, in in Than's case, her name is Than, uh, and he Len calls her Jane. Uh, she was so her family kind of arranged it with brokers back in Vietnam for for her and her sister to travel to the UK illegally to work and then later on to to send back money but unfortunately and tragically this is a this is a big thing that's happening and these people in that situation are being exploited in a multitude of different ways and this this is just kind of one potential story but there are so many others of people forced to work in cannabis farms people forced to work in 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 farms people forced to work in nail bars all sorts of things so yeah the eastern european thing is definitely another angle on this and an, another tragic issue but the vietnamese angle is there as well and and i have vietnamese family members as well my my uh, sister-in-law and my niece and my nephew are vietnamese and i've traveled to vietnam so that might have influenced my decision in on a, again on the unconscious level um because I, i knew a little bit about that Yeah, it's interesting you mention other forms of kind of servitude because terrifyingly the the captivity in in this book is is of a very intimate nature and I was I was quite impressed and very relieved at how subtly you approach the actual kind of sexual crimes that are being committed in the book because no one could accuse this novel of being exploitative was that a direct choice Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, I think anybody who reads a lot you kind of you see when this is done well and you see when it's when it's not done so well and my job isn't to isn't to titillate i don't want things to be gratuitous i'd rather leave all of that off the page i think it can it can be more powerful in its message if it's left off the page and if you just kind of infer and and leave things like that to the reader to understand i think the more i read and the more i write the more i understand that readers are sophisticated and they don't need to be kind of spoon-fed details it doesn't it's not necessary it's it's best done with a light touch i think as you say things left off the page that the, the single most chilling line in the novel to me and I, and i won't give away any spoilers with this is just a throwaway reference to a white towel being taken down to a cellar and and with that one that one reference you you sent my my stomach to jelly Thank you. Thank you very much. Len himself in general the villain, he's very kind of gently quietly horrific and terrifying. Like the things he do, he does it are absolutely awful. But I don't give him much page time in terms of getting into his head. I'm not trying to explain his actions. I'm not he doesn't deserve to be to have his views on the page. And that makes him all the more chilling in a way because he doesn't say that much. He doesn't do that much, but when when he walks through the house, you kind of feel it. you know and she kind of you understand her fear when he comes in off his tractor or off his quad bike she's vulnerable she she's in a awful situation and living with that for a day must be horrific but living with that year after year having to endure it and survive it takes real courage and real guts and that's kind of what i wanted to write about Yeah and one of the things she endures as you've mentioned is the the slow erosion of her identity you know it 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 begins with her name and then it begins with her her belongings being burned in this rayburn stove hence the title the last thing to burn and it's it's at once both a awful reality and a really potent metaphor was that built into the novel from that very first ideation session in bed at midnight or did that come later 
It was actually, yeah. I, I saw it that night I, or that morning, early morning. I saw that she had a certain number of possessions. I think it's 17 that she starts off with. And this is maybe something I'd read during my research stage, the fact that you, know, you or I, we have a lot of possessions. We have too many possessions. But people in that situation, they, they often have few possessions because of the way they've been traveling but they are extremely important to them they are their connection to home whether it's a photograph of a grandparent or it's it's an id card with the the text written in their own language they often tend to take on huge emotional significance and i thought that you know this villain this farmer he he doesn't burn them all at once which would be bad enough but he punishes her in his very quiet way by every time she does something that displeases him he'll ask her to choose one of her remaining possessions. So through the years, her identity is just dwindling, it's extinguishing down to this very small thing. And that is heartbreaking for me as a writer and probably for, for readers because you just see this person who's hanging on by a thread and, and every time that she does something that he doesn't approve of, he asks her to choose, you know, you've got two or three things left. Do you want to, do you want to burn your sister's letters or do you want to burn your photograph of your parents like it's just horrific and he does it in a very calm kind of emotionless way it's, it's yeah it makes my skin crawl and my stomach's stomach tighten now even now to be honest yeah he makes my skin crawl and i, I know you said you don't have much time for Len. And he is an almost faceless presence in the novel. I mean, I think the only description you give of him is that he's big. And at one point you mentioned gray hair, but beyond that, we know nothing about what this man looks like. And it, and it doesn't matter. It just simply doesn't matter at all. But you do really create a sense of texture to him. And you do it through, you know, his routines, the things he eats, his, what, he, what he watches on TV. Now, it's possible to compare him to somebody like Annie Wilkes from Misery in terms of the kind of total control he has over his victim and, and the kind of flawed morality that he has that he doesn't really see himself as doing anything wrong. But where there's a pathetic tragedy to Annie Wilkes, a kind of pathos, there's none of that with Len. He's just monstrous. All that said, there must have been a real creation process behind that. How did you come up with and shape this monster? I agree with you. He's he's kind of different to Annie Wilkes. I mean, she she is kind of sometimes hysterical. She's literally driven by her emotions getting out of control. And he is very, very unemotional and he's very consistent. And there is a fresh horror in that. And he doesn't think that what he's doing is strange. He justifies it constantly. So he, uh, yeah, it, it is horrific. And him, in terms of coming up with him, it was his voice, I think, the way he speaks, that real rural Midlands dialect that I used to have, that my family still have. And so, some of the men that I knew growing up, whether it was working with them or in any other capacity, just kind of old school rural guys who don't show a lot of emotion, who, who are quite stoic and quiet. So I guess I just took that. Well, the actual grammar of his voice is is characteristic as well like he drops the definite article every time he never you know it's all it's all noun verb noun verb it's, it's very bleak it's as bleak and brutal as anything else in the novel i mean i'm from the northwest so it's you know not a million miles from where you're setting this you know and and yeah i i hear it i hear it in in some of the people i work with in horrible jobs when i was a kid and and it, it it's a voice that speaks of a kind of unthinking brutality and it's horrible it, it really yeah it, it does yeah. make your stomach churn as you say when when he walks in the house you feel that oppressive presence 
I mean, that's definitely true with Len, lack, lack of intellect and, and a, a lack of empathy, a lack of so many different things. But I mean, I, I like to try and give the benefit of the doubt to the guys that I saw when I was growing up. And maybe it was just the way they were brought up, you know, men from a different era who weren't in connection with their emotions in any way and who'd been brought up in a, in a, in a quite brutal, tough way. But yeah, Len is, Len is like that and then some. And maybe that's because of his mother, you know, which I touch on in the book. Yeah, I was going to get to that, yeah. Yeah, I don't talk about it a lot. There's a sort of Ed Gein, Norman Bates thing going on there, isn't there? I mean, a little bit, a little bit. Even the the, the use of the word, of the name Jane, because his mother was was called Jane as well. And and I don't know, him thinking that this is normal and this, this very simple friend and life, if he keeps producing the crops and keeps harvesting and keeps sowing seed, at the right time that's just his life and she needs to keep doing the things that he wants her to do like you know cooking the right meal on the right day and uh, keeping the the sink scrubbed and bleached and uh, it, it is horrific he's he's kind of perpetuating maybe some horror that his mother had set up decades before you're you're mentioning his mother as kind of a throwaway detail maybe i've read too much american gothic but his mother to me felt like a real presence in the house like a real character and it was all inferred it's all done via just his reactions to Jane and his disappointments. It says a lot about his relationship with his mother and it leaves a lot of hanging implications there that I'm, I'm not really sure I want to confront. I'm, I agree. I'm, I feel exactly the same way. I don't want to go there. That family is too, too, um, too dark, even for me. Yeah, I mean, for example, Jane, as, as Len calls her, fan real name, she, she has to wear his mother's old clothes. You know, his mother's old shoes. His she has to use all of his mother's old things, and that's just an extra level of degradation, an extra level of stripping away the identity. And it, it is quite twisted the way that he is still controlled in some sense by his late mother. I'm enjoying the extent to which you are unnerved by your own book. Well, I'm not normally. Uh, the Tuva novels are there's a lot more light and shade. You know, if you think about Twin Peaks, you've got a lot of humor in there, a lot of weirdness as, as well as sad events and darkness. And I like writing that. And maybe that's why Tuva works as an ongoing series because it's not too much for me. I can manage it. There are, there's a lot of love and humor in there, but this book uh, doesn't really have a lot of light and shade. There is some with the main characters love for certain people, but it was a, it was an ordeal writing it to be honest. It was, it was a tough write. And every time I rewrote it and edited it and, and, and worked on it, it was a tough read again. You know, I'd find myself getting quite emotional by the end of it. Was there any point in which you had doubts about how dark it was going? I'm asking because if this was marketed as a horror novel, then there are different boundaries in place. But as a, for want of a better word, a thriller, it is much darker than most stuff out there. Yeah, I, honestly, I don't compare anything I write to anything else, really. I try not to. I, I try and insulate myself from the market and things like that. I leave my agent and my editor and, and my brilliant publishing teams and booksellers to work out what genre my books are in. My books are all over the place. Like you said, they're a bit thriller, a bit literary, a little bit horror and other things, too. Well, I mean, the thing I, the thing I found doing this podcast in just 15 episodes is that modern genre categories are essentially useless but yeah. what, I, what i suppose i'm saying is for a for a potentially a mainstream audience it is just a very dark book and i wondered if you thought you were taking risks anyway good question i don't think i i don't think in that kind of conscious way 
at that early stage. So months and months, years after, maybe I was thinking that or worried about certain things. But at the same time, I think if you write everything from a place of love and empathy, you do it in the right way. You can write about anything if you do it in the right way, from the right place, you know, with the right motives. So I think that where this book goes to some very dark places, that could have been done well or it could have been done badly. Like that's up to me to try to achieve and it's up to the readers to decide if they if they like it or not but I think if you do everything with empathy if you write it in a very human way connected to the feelings of the characters then it it will turn out all right you know I wouldn't write something that I'm not happy with or that I feel that is gratuitous or whatever I would just if I ever wrote that I would cut it out. So you mentioned empathy there and love you write wonderfully about new motherhood in the novel in a way that it makes it quite distinct from general parenthood because I know you've got kids but it's quite a distinct relationship now this may be a really insulting question to ask a professional writer but how did you plumb that part of the psyche I think it's a good question and I also think it's kind of a difficult question to answer it's like how do you write how do you inhabit another character I don't really know I think it's partly something that you have in you that ability to empathize and to feel or to imagine what it feels like to be someone else going through something and it's research and it's being a very observant like I guess when my wife was going through that you know pregnancy and and giving birth and those first few weeks and months of motherhood I was doing my my dad thing but I was also making sure she was okay and watching every tiny little detail just because it was the most fascinating thing I'd ever seen in my life and maybe writers kind of see things with a slightly different eye they really see things and then maybe file some of those images away or, or some of those um, feelings away and you know what it's like good writing is just picking out just those tiny little details those tiny little facial expressions or those tiny little turns of phrase that place the reader in that world. So you become immersed in that story and you'll, you'll come out of your own problems and your worries about paying the mortgage and feeding the dog. You forget about all that. You're in that fictional world. And that's all about huge amounts of empathy. And that takes, that takes work as well. It takes a, a lifetime of reading and it takes being fully immersed yourself in your own story you know that's that's another reason why I like to write first drafts really intensely is because I don't want to leave that world I want it to feel authentic and the same thing with details of motherhood I just I just tried my best well your best was more than good enough to finish off talking about the book is there any talk of adapting this for film because if not we need to get a petition up there is <laughs> <laughs> there is my t my my screen agent is brilliant and he is talking to people i can't really say anything more than that but i would love to see it on screen yeah um totally out of my control if it happens or not but the the, the two of the books have been uh bought by lionsgate to turn into a returning tv series which will, will be amazing and they are well suited to a tv series but this is like you say i think this is a movie this is a, just a one one-off movie and I will let you know, man, if, if there's any firm news. Yeah, yeah, let me know. People are talking, yeah. Good, that is, that is, that is great news. Uh, what's next for you? Do you know yet? Yeah, I'm, I'm always working. I work every day of the year, including Christmas Day a little bit. So 
I'm work, right now I'm working on Tuva number four, which comes out next autumn, and Tuva number five, which comes out in 2022. It sounds very futuristic. And I'm also working on the second standalone. I'm delivering that to my editor at Hodder and in Simon, Simon & Schuster in the US uh, before Christmas. And then I'm, I have the idea for the next standalone. So I'm like on a constant cycle of, you know, I maybe have five ideas a year and then over a, over the next 12 months, the three of them fall away and I'm left with two and they're the ones I'm obsessed with. They're the ones I write. Can you tell us anything about the next standalone? I can tell you it's a tiny, tiny bit. It's, um, it's quite different. It's set in New York. Yeah, actually, that's all I'm going to tell you because it's <laughs> such early days and I haven't delivered it yet. But it's it's also a quite dark thriller, very twisty. And it's it's very deep, deep dive psychological as well. A bit like this one is into one character's head. I like to I like to come up with a character and just inhabit their mind for a while. So it's similar to this in, in, in some ways. You saying New York has just reminded me now, and I hope this is a compliment. All week I've been thinking, what does this book remind me of? As you say, the deep dive psychology of it. And it's just dawned on me who I who your 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 voice in this most reminds me of, and it's Patrick McGrath. If ever you've read Patrick McGrath. No, I haven't. Well, a Asylum by Patrick McGrath. Again, it's that psychological deep dive. Yeah, that is Okay. I'm I'm glad you mentioned New York. That was the key for me. I will I will I will read him. Thank you. So to finish off, I ask each of my guests for what I call rapid fire questions, but you can talk as long as you want. But I want you to think off the top of your head, if that's OK. Absolutely. So question one, what was your gateway to horror? For you, we can allow the phrase dark fiction. <laughs> my gateway to horror or dark fiction. Um, OK, so being that awkward kid in the Midlands, I grew up in a family with no books. There were no books in the house. I was the first kid to go to school past 15 and my family thought I was quite weird for wanting to read books, but I did have access to a local mobile library van that came around the villages once a week. And I would, early days, I would read a lot of Roald Dahl. And I think he was one of the masters, really, of that, that kind of dark fiction and borderline horror, you know, for kids, just incredibly dark. I'm reading some of them now to my boy who's six and we read The Enormous Crocodile the other day, which is one of his shorter books about a crocodile that eats kids. And my boy was so scared, he asked me to go into the garden and bury the book. And that's a hell of a compliment to an author. Yeah, that's like the Babadook. <laughs> yeah, totally. But like, George's Marvelous Medicine, The Witches, and then later on with things like Boy, they're just brilliantly dark. And then... Leading on from Roald Dahl, I got into Stephen King then at probably an unhealthily early age and just went through his entire catalogue. And even now, you know, he's he's one of my one of the authors that I reread and I find a lot of comfort reading his voice and rereading his voice. So, yeah, Roald Dahl, then Stephen King. You've just described my my exact trajectory of reading. I remember <laughs> uh, my mum my read me The Witches, took me to see the film where Angelica Houston peels her face off when I was like seven terrifyingly young the film ended i turned to her when the lights came up i was nearly in tears from fear and she basically rubbed her scalp as if to show that her, her face was fake amazing i haven't ever quite got over it to be honest <laughs> <laughs> question two if you could recommend one book to our readers what would it be and why okay uh, my favorite book is the road by cormac mccarthy and 
it's just an absolute masterpiece. It's one of it's one of those books where it's the only book that I've ever read really that is perfect. I think every word, every sentence, every scene, every image. It's about the love between a father and his son, and a son and his father, and it's absolutely exquisite. It's terrifying. It's very, very uh, kind of intimate portrayal of that relationship. It's very filmic and cinematic, and uh, the landscape plays a role. And the language is, is, is incredible. It's, it's an absolute masterpiece. Great answer. If you had a single piece of advice for a fledgling author, what would it be? Piece of advice for a fledgling author. So I do give a lot of little tips on my YouTube channel, actually, which is called Will Dean Forest Author, about how to, how to get started writing, how to get some confidence, how to query, how to get an agent, that kind of thing. So go there if you want more answers. But um, in terms of my, everybody says read a lot. And I agree with that. That's the number one thing you do. If, you, if you're reading, you know, a book a month now, quit something else and read two books a month. Reading is the most important thing. But aside from reading, I would say just don't go into this half-hearted. If you want to be a writer, you know, be a writer. Sacrifice TV if you need to. That's what Stephen King suggests in on writing. That's what I did for four years. So I could up my reading game. I quit TV much to the annoyance of my wife. Just don't do no half measures, you know, really you, you've got to go for it. You've got to commit to it. You've got to try and work on your craft. And then when you get an agent and you get published, keep working on your craft. Don't obsess or worry about or be impressed by broadsheet reviews, bestseller lists, movie deals. It's all irrelevant. That's all stuff that you wrote two years before. It's all about improving your writing so that the book you write in three years and seven years and 20 years something you're happy with so that's what i would say don't uh, don't do half measures really go for it that's a brilliant answer i want to play that for my wife to convince i was right to quit my job for six months thank you very much <laughs> um and my my last question uh, and this is i'm asking this to a man who lives in a forest um but what most scares you what most scares me i mean the same as everybody else really you know things happening to my loved ones and stuff like that um rational fears like claustrophobia if you're trapped in a pothole underground that really does terrify me uh but that stuff is all normal forests don't scare me at all because i'm here i love nature i feel very confident and comfortable in nature with no people around to help you know we don't have we can't call a fire service here or police there's nobody's going to come maybe police would come eventually if they could find us but like we're very much on our own one one particular thing that scared the hell out of me was when i was about 20s early 20s and i watched the blair witch project and most there's only about five films i reckon that have really scared me and that's one of them and i came out of the cinema i was scared in the cinema i thought it was great came out of the cinema it was a little indie cinema in london and you know there was just there was like swing doors between the auditorium and the area where they sell popcorn and they had turned all the lights off in that reception area and they'd hung a little stick figure from the ceiling. <laughs> and I, my sister and I were the first ones out of the doors and that thing hit her in the face. She brushed past it and that was terrifying. And that was, I was, I was so impressed that the cinema had done that. The Blair Witch was ruined for me because I was mugged on the way to watching it. So oh, no, the film couldn't be as scary as what just happened to me. So I, I, I never got the full effect. And it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's bad times. That's my questions asked, Will. All I'll say is, if this doesn't make at least the book a long list, we riot. But thank you for talking scared with us. You're very kind, Neil. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. 
thank you for all these questions. Thank you. So hands up if you're jealous of Will's life. <laughs> I'd give pretty much anything to live in a cabin in the woods with my huge dog. Yeah, he's got a huge dog. Check his social media for pictures. It's it's an incredible beast. If living off the grid helps Will write books like The Last Thing to Burn, then I think we should force more authors to do it. I think we should raise a petition every year we get to send, well, force one author off into the woods to write a masterpiece. <laughs> I know I, I must come across a bit obsequious on this show sometimes. You know, I'm always praising the books week on week. But do believe me when I say that I am genuine and I only invite authors on whose work I love because, I mean, why would I do otherwise? But also, in, in regards to The Last Thing to Burn, I cannot emphasise how much I enjoyed this novel. It's everything a thriller should be and nothing at all that it shouldn't. It's clean and concise, but very profound. Um, it's not at all explorative, but it is deeply sickening by implication. Basically, it's my first absolute must-read of the year. And hey, it's only been one week, so that bodes well for the next 12 months. During the conversation, Will and I discussed a few novels. Obviously, we mentioned Misery by Stephen King and Room by Emma Donoghue. This is a comparison that's been thrown around a lot in relation to The Last Thing to Burn, you know, by myself included. They are very different novels. I'm assuming most people listening to this show will be familiar with Misery, the novel in which Stephen King basically took on his own fans uh, and constructed a story out of his own frustration at being pigeonholed as a horror novelist. Ironically, it's one of his greatest pure horror novels. It's continually in my top three, King, which obviously is saying something and it's actually a much more complex subtle and sophisticated novel than a lot of people give it credit for rush off and read that right now if you haven't and if you have go reread it you'll always find more stuff in there and room by emma donahue came out of nowhere and took the world by storm as i said to willie it it was the first novel of this century that really took on this this horrible phenomena of sexual captivity people like joseph fritzel stuff like that. Um, but again, it's not exploitative. It's not really about the horrors perpetrated on this woman. It's more about the escape of her and her son and their eventual coming to terms and rising above the ordeal they've experienced. I remember reading it when it first came out in 2010. I remember lying in bed reading it and there's an escape scene in that novel in which I physically felt my heart rate increase and I was turning the pages faster and faster. And it, it's the most profound moment I've ever experienced of, of a book having a physical effect on my body. Again, very different to The Last Thing to Burn, but Room, Misery and Will's novel make a great thematic trilogy about captivity and endurance and survival. I recommend reading them all. Will also mentioned On Writing by Stephen King, and, and I'm surprised this hasn't come up more often when I'm talking to authors, because, you know, lots of authors by now have have mentioned the influence that King had on them as readers and as writers. And in the year 2000, Stephen King wrote On Writing, which is a half autobiography and half writing guide. It won all kinds of awards. I think it won the National Book Award. It sounds pretty dry, you know, a book on how to write, but honestly, it's an absolute breeze. Even if you have no intention of ever putting pen to paper, it's worth reading for the anecdotes alone. And if you do want to write, then you need to read this book. 
Lastly, Will mentioned The Road by Colin McCarthy as his recommended book. Again, I'm, I'm assuming most people are familiar with this. You may have seen the film with Viggo Mortensen. It's a book that would be interesting in our current climate. It's about the worst apocalypse imaginable in which a young boy and his father make this trek across a, a dilapidated America. You know, you don't really know what's gone on, but something horrible's happened and, and more horrible things continue to happen. And in a week in which we've seen apocalypse and dystopia firsthand on the news, it may be quite a discomforting read, but it is it is a true masterpiece. I mean, it won the Pulitzer. It's McCarthy's best novel. Some people may say Blood Meridian. But yeah, it's a grueling book to get your teeth into at this time of year. But, you know, maybe give it a go. Maybe wait for all this to blow over. <laughs> and I also compared in passing Will's work to the writing of Patrick McGrath. So Patrick McGrath has kind of fallen from, from the spotlight in recent years. His, his work and his output have slowed down. But you may not have heard of him, but I would recommend everybody who's into gothic or the grotesque or you know this kind, of, this kind of subtle creeps that we talked about in today's episode. If you like that kind of stuff, go and pick up one of Patrick's books. I made the comparison to Asylum, which is is probably his, his best known novel. But he also has other novels, you know, The Grotesque, Dr. Haggard's Disease, Spider, which was made into a great film starring Ray Fiennes. Uh, and Martha Peake is, is his attempt at writing a traditional American gothic. Patrick McGrath grew up in Broadmoor, which, for those who don't know, is probably the most famous mental hospital here in here in the UK. It has a it has a creepy history all of its own. It's kind of like our Danvers State Hospital. He grew up in the grounds as his father was head physician there, and he's an expert in unwrapping the malignant psyches of heroes and villains alike. He reminds me very much of Will uh, and Will's novel in the way that he balances pace and thrill with real psychological insight so yeah Patrick McGrath start with Asylum then move on from there Will's answer to my question about writing advice was you know particularly inspiring I thought and as he as he mentioned you can find more stuff like that on his YouTube channel which is Will Dean Forest author and I'll include a link to that in the show notes alongside all of the books mentioned in, in this episode Speaking about social media, if you want to contact me, then it's the usual channels, Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'm in the throes of setting up a website, which will hopefully give me more space to communicate with you, write some more expansive content, blog posts and book reviews, stuff like that. Watch this space, or I I suppose listen to this space for more info on that. I think this has been a great start to the year already. If you agree, then please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. I'm currently languishing a mere seven reviews, all five star, um, but my humble aim is to get it to 50 by April. So seeing as this is free content and I do my best to make it good, if you like it, then that's how you can show your appreciation and I would appreciate it in turn. That's enough from me for this week. Until next week, now more than ever, Be kind, show empathy, protect democracy and enjoy the Trump-free social media experience. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.